0: Good evening. You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me tonight, we welcome our friend, freelance writer Stephen Strom. Hello. And we also welcome back freelance writer Fraser Brown. Hello. And finally, we have Games Beat's Blurst of Times correspondent, Rowan Kaiser. (laughs) Stupid monkeys. Uh, so today we're going to be talking a little bit about the intersection of, uh, procedural gen- uh, procedural generation and strategic layers in both strategy games and other sorts of games that are trying to crib a little bit from strategy games themselves. Uh, Rowan, you want to, you want to kind of lay, lay the ground for this a little bit?
1: Basically, uh. We are kind of accidentally doing two non-strategy game shows uh, in a row because it just so happened that Pillars of Eternity 2 and State of Decay 2 were released in the same month, which was also relatively dry for strategy games after we had a very, very robust start of the year for strategy games. Um, So that's just kind of a weird coincidence, but State of Decay 2 seemed to get a lot of interesting ideas out from uh, you and me and Steven, uh, which... It's an interesting idea that I think fails most remarkably at the strategic layer. And that uh, sort of had us talk about, you know, other games that try to bring in strategic components into genres that are not necessarily strategic. And uh, also, I think this gives us a really great excuse to talk about Suikoden for the third time in like a month on this show. (laughs) And I know that both me and Steven are super hyped about that.
0: Congratulations on backdooring that uh, back end.
1: Yeah, yeah, at it's some gonna point, be great. I'm just going to have to tear it's the bandaid off
0: and we're going to do the Suikoden show. Uh, but <laughs> for now, I guess we'll, we'll keep letting it be germane to the conversation at hand. Um, yeah, and I think once we sort of looked at what State of Decay 2 did and did wrong and the ways that sort of compared with the first one, we realized there's actually a lot of games that have sort of uh, been circling the space and playing around with different... Uh, you know, different pieces of these, uh, of these ideas. Uh, But let's talk a little bit about state of state of decay and the state of decay series to maybe get some clarity on what it is. We're, we're sort of thinking about right now. Um, You know, I'll put it on the record here. I really liked state of decay one. And I ended up really disliking state of decay Two, but, what they have in common is this idea of trying to create sort of a really sy- uh, systemic um, resource management game within the context of a zombie apocalypse, right? These are both games where the clock is always running on you. Um, your your group of survivors don't just sit passively at home waiting for missions to come up, but they have to be fed, they have to be equipped with ammunition, uh, They they have... You know, personal disputes break out among them that affect the morale. So in both games, there's this idea that all the familiar pieces of a zombie apocalypse story, you know, uh, hard-pressed bands of survivors and uh, misfits gathering together in, in, in the wasteland, uh, all of those are there, but rather than necessarily being completely controlled by the author, uh, who sort of Descri- who is sort of has described every every story beat we're going to hit. Uh, the idea in State of Decay and certainly even more so in State of Decay Two is that the world itself is going to generate uh, these these story beats, but also create a lot of like strategic dynamics for you to consider that will drive the action. And State of Decay Two was going to take that to a much it was going to take that much further than the the first game did. Uh, And I was sort of taken aback by how much I ended up disliking that approach.
1: I I think that, I mean, the lesson here is that it did it really wrong. It tried to add this strategic layer that um, would continue to give players motivation, uh, there would always be potentially something for you to do. You always need more food, and you, there's a way to search for food and figure out like which building you want to go ransack, and then you go beat up the zombies in the action mode, and then bring the food back, and you you know watch your little me- food meter go up. Um, and I think one of the motivations for games adding strategic layers that in genres that don't necessarily have it is that they can do this kind of thing. They can procedurally generate quests for you to do based on things that have happened and make it somewhat organic or um, in the case of uh, some other games that we might talk about, make it a way for them to sell microtransactions. Uh, That's not the case with State of Decay 2, but we'll, we'll get to Shadow of War. Um, So it's, it's this way to kind of make games that typically had like a, you know 8 to 12 hour runtime be something that you can play for a lot longer and be something that you want to invest in both with time and money a lot longer um, so that's that's a really good idea in theory like if you want what having one great game that you can play for 60 hours might be better than six great games for eight hours but uh you have to do it right and the problem with a lot of these games is that they sort of the strategic layers feels tacked on and that's certainly the case with State of Decay 2. Why do you think it ends up
0: failing so badly in State of Decay 2? Because when I look at State of Decay 2, uh on paper it would seem to be a lot of the things that I think I would want from a game like this. Uh the different lineups of characters you can have living your settlement and the way they will play off of each other, uh it features a lot of flexibility and different dynamics that will emerge, uh at least theoretically, uh depending on who's in your party. Uh the idea that there's always going to be this this tension, uh that there are always various little, you know, hourglasses with the sand running out of them uh that you need to be worried about. Usually I like it when games sort of uh, hold your feet to the fire and demand that you keep one step ahead of, uh, you know, exhaustion, uh, depletion, uh, you know, being overrun, things like that. And yet in State of Decay 2, I find... I'm, I'm also trying to figure out which comes first. My frustration with it as a world that I care about and I'm interested in spending time in Uh, Is that where things first go wrong or is it also that systemically a lot of this doesn't really hang together in a satisfying way? That this stuff works as a bit of uh, flavor, a bit of uh, like, you know, uh, sauce, uh, you know, over the over the top of an otherwise pretty simple and familiar dish, uh, but does not work as the main course.
2: If you don't mind if I step in to... Um, yeah. I think, that like, you said it yourself, like, there are all these hourglasses kind of running um, above the action out of the macro level throughout the game, but I think it's not even that there are multiple hourglasses. It's all just the same exact hourglass. Um, it's just always that people are going to get pissed at you if you don't go take care of their problems for them in this way, and, you know, you don't uh, exhaust resources, exhaust stamina, exhaust survivors who will get systemically, you know, take damage and um it's not while it's not permanent it can put them out of action or weaken them for long periods of time so the people in the game the survivors are kind of a resource unto themselves and the game constantly wants you to expend them uh on these things that are you know you you are spinning plates but the plates themselves aren't that particularly interesting they're not that varied um it's it's just the same one over and over and over again and i kind of um think that it's succeeds on the on the micro level uh, as one Austin Walker uh, argued pretty well i think where the small character interactions based on the like procedurally generated character traits like this person took you know uh, keto lessons or whatever, or this person uh, was a college student or whatever, that stuff can create these really interesting, like, headcanon stories around your survivors and things like that, but you're still pretty much just doing the same thing over and over and over again, and still always worrying about the same things, about the same, uh, you know, food going down is no basically no different than gas going down, is basically no different than uh, bullets going down, you know, in terms of, like, what you do to collect those things and even the options that you have for collecting those things is so sanded down. And so it doesn't allow for those same kinds of like systemic wrinkles that your individual character traits can allow for. The big example that I've mentioned in my own review on Ars Technica is that there was this, you know, in the, in the map that I played on originally, because there are three maps, um, for those who don't know, there is this sort of electric, uh, wind turbine farm uh, off in the distance on the other side of a giant river on the very other side of the map from where you start on this uh, scenario and I created this entire like meta narrative for myself about like my survivor crew needs to get From this place, to across the bridge, across the river, to this area where we can find that windmill. Because it's on the horizon, it's constantly there, it's this big giant thing that is obviously meant to draw my attention. There's something special about that. And, you know, I think it it got me to think about things like the Walking Dead TV series, where it's like, well, we we got the prison, we have a defensible location. In my case, I was like, well, if I can get to the wind farm, that's free electricity, that frees me up to, to make different decisions with my... Uh, resources that I have and build it base differently than I normally would have to make different strategic options. And I got there and the wind turbines were there and it was this big, interesting farm and it looked interesting, but it had the exact same costs and requirements and benefits as a gas station or anything else. The wind turbines required me to spend, would give me electricity, but they required me to spend the same amount of gas as a, just a regular electric generator on my base. And it felt like such a betrayal of like what the like promise of that thing on the horizon was and what the like strategic option that I had built for myself, which I think the game encourages you to build those kind of little stories for yourself, but like doesn't have the, at least at that high level, doesn't have the like variants to back up those stories. So I think
1: uh, Rob, you mentioned that you have all these different hourglasses taking down and Stephen is right that they are all kind of ticking down and, resolved in exactly the same way. Um, The problem that I see with State of Decay 2 is that there's nothing that ties these various meters. Like, I I see this at, like, there's these four bars that are going up. There's, like, health and food and all the, the health and resources and space and all those things. And, you know, in a strategy game, these things are tied together. In a civilization, like, you're making the choice to go with culture instead of military for whatever reason. And, you know, there are advantages and disadvantages but the culture and the military are still kind of related like this is a a choice that has consequences for you know maybe you have one city building culture and one city building military units and that's fine or you military doesn't uh your military isn't strong enough when you need it uh so you're learning this lesson here in state of decay these things aren't tied together they're just sort of going off up into the air and each one is resolved on its own and that is just fundamentally unsatisfying and the way the game kind of tries to hack that is by having like this grand meta currency of influence where when you complete a quest you get you get influence and this influence is just the resource that is like progression so in yeah, the an end odd it, one. it's in the end it ends up being closer to like an rpg experience points thing that buys everything like Almost everything in the game comes from just you did a lot of stuff, now you can do a slightly different thing. And it's just fundamentally not interesting. And it, the comparison that I would make is to um, games like RimWorld or even Steel Division, games that I've uh, we've talked about, uh, especially I've talked about, is having kind of like a one-to-one... Um, Everything is itself. Uh, in Rimworld, a piece of wood is a piece of wood. Like, you can do what you would do with a piece of wood regardless. You can pick it up and ba- bash someone's brain in. You can use it to build a fence, whatever. In State of Decay, these things are all abstracted. And, like, in a game like Civilization, you have to abstract it because it's about the abstractions of running a society. But when you have eight people in a house, you don't need that level of abstraction. In a game like Rimworld, has that in a game like oxygen not included uh all of these survival strategy games that are built on the things that state of decay seems to be promising of the your character interactions of like making the hard decisions in a harsh environment but because state of decay's action focus kind of has that be the thing that it is the meta layer the strategic layer that it has just goes off into nowhere and i think this is the core Core flaw, because the killing zombies part is just fine, like, there's, there's nothing wrong with that, and, you know, there, there are moments, especially earlier on in the game, before you figure out how repetitive it is that really get the kind of systemic stories, but then um, the strategic layer actually tracks from that because there's nothing there. Now this is, I think...
3: I know they, they dropped a 20-gig patch the other day, and they're promising more. Do you think that it, the problems can be fixed with, with the strategy layer to make it more compelling? Or do you think it's just like a fundamental issue with the game that no patches can really change? I think
1: it's a fundamental issue with the game. Um, the uh, I think both Steven and I had the same point where we like really wanted to move our house, you know, expand to a bigger place. And we did this and realized that <laughs> it was really fucking boring. Um, like, it, mm. it, it just... The way that it's set up where the houses are like these embedded things that have specific room sizes and whatever, and all your only choice is which sort of thing that you're building in that room. There's no like organic expansion it's all embedded into the core of the game the influence system is embedded into the core of the game and i think those are the the core flaws of the strategic layer and i don't know that there's a way around them like if you could say i want to build this fence around this house a little further and build a bigger garden like that would be so much better but that's just not the engine they have because they have uh these are like created modular maps and that might be necessary because it's an and it was the same in the first yeah.
3: game as well. Those limitations existed so what, then. What
1: worked about the first game that this one is not doing for you guys? Or, Fraser, what did you like about the first game since you
3: uh Yeah, I because so, I didn't really... I mean, obviously there's like a management side to it. I didn't really consider it a sort of... Like a strategy or tactical, any sort of layer beyond just—it's like a sandbox where you've got some people and you can do some very limited customization. For me, it was more about the narrative component, the uh, the random characters, and how like. It was a little bit buggy, so it was more being entertained by how often <laughs> ineffectual these characters are. Um, I did um, a few videos for it, and there was one character, I think her name was Allison, and whenever I was out and about, I would get an alert that Allison was in danger. Just whenever, I, no matter what I was doing, going to visit a house, going to kill zombies, Allison was in trouble. And I, it just got to the point where I would just pass her by and just ram into all the zombies. Crowd. Her and drive off again because I knew in about 20 minutes Alison would be in trouble again and it became this like weird relationship I had with this character um, and it wasn't really based on her background or anything like that it was really just that she was <laughs> shit uh, and that's what I liked I kind of liked the, these weird little uh, vignettes and stories that could occur um, I never really considered it um, Even I didn't even really consider it much of a management game um, because it was so light. It seemed, the management side of things seemed to loom much greater at f- like when I first kind of got my little commune of survivors going. But then I realised it was all very mm-hmm. shallow, really, and I, I just stuck around for the, for the laughs, really. But yeah, I loved it, and I was hoping that they could kind of keep the sort of slapstick silliness, slightly jankiness but add a, a meaningful strategic and management layer. But it sounds like for you guys, they did <laughs> not.
0: Fraser, I'm, I'm curious. Did you, like, in addition to, because it, it is a very silly game. Yeah, like, absolutely. Everything in that first game is very weightless. Um, a bonding ritual that unfolds between you and other members of your community is, like, people are like, man, I need to go uh, blow off some steam. You want to go kill some zombies, <laughs> and that still happens in this game. But like in that first one, it's really like, man, I'm just feeling a little down. I just, you know, you know what makes me feel better? Could we go? You know what I want? Could we, could we go kill some zombies? <laughs> and like the first time you do that, it's like, haha! And then you realize, like, oh, that's just how, like, that's how bonding. That's works their main in this interaction. Game. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But which, which I suppose isn't that far off from um. Zombie killing is just playing the role of minigames in a GTA, really. Uh, but that's the difference that makes all the difference. But, but I'm curious, in addition to that sort of silliness, I did like the ways that that world and its uh, faint unpredictability or, or, prob- or probability-driven uh, dynamics interacted with The authored characters themselves. Like, as silly as that game could be, I also did kind of get invested in the weird tensions and relationships of the people who lived in this world. Like for me, State of Decay was compelling because it felt like a zombie story, but less predictable and more alive, if that if that makes sense. It felt more like a zombie apocalypse sim. Uh, than, for instance, like uh, you know, The Last of Us ever ever could be. Did, did you connect with it on that level, or was the underlying absurdity too much for you to really forge that connection?
3: I did like that it didn't feel like we were just this tiny group of survivors against the world, that there were all these little holdouts. It still felt like it was like the world was collapsing, but hadn't collapsed yet, which I liked, so I actually, because this wasn't almost like a post-apocalyptic world, it was still a world that could be saved, I actually quite liked the the otherwise quite boring um, kind of nondescript American countryside um, and I, I, I'm i not sure I really felt that invested in any individual characters Um there were certain characters I play as that I enjoyed more because I had good experiences with them or funny stories I took away and even though that didn't really have that much to do with the character itself, um, it sort of forged a connection. Uh but yeah, I didn't I didn't really have an emotional attachment to anyone, I don't think. Um but I didn't I don't really need to either. I fe- it was just a sort of uh a silly random sandbox for me.
2: I'm actually kind of curious to ask both of you um, something about that along those lines, too, which is I played the first State of Decay, but not a ton. I think I just ran into one bug too many at the time, which is kind of still a problem in this game, too. Um, and it kind of bounced off of it. But was the case in that game? Because in this one, it feels to me like this is the lowest stakes zombie apocalypse in history. <laughs> like um, <laughs> like, like you said, uh, uh, Rob, the like idea of going out and just, I just need to blow some steam. Let's go kill some zombies. Like the, the way that, like... You know, ah, I, I just need to blow off some steam. Let's, you know, let's go bowling or something like that. The zombies feel like a they're they're present in this universe, but, like, it seems like your odds of being killed by a zombie are about the same as, like, getting hit by a car. It's just more like something that the survivors deal with going on. And I'm just kind of curious if that, like, same sort of, like, lack of tension uh, was present in the previous game, or is that if that's kind of new to this one? Yeah.
3: Um, I think they seem like a pretty decent threat. I mean zombies are always kind of that yeah. like joke, aren't they? They're they're shit, but that's why they're dangerous because you let your guard down and they've got you. Um and there is still that sense. Um and there were moments where you'd be worried about a character and I lost characters and um but there was also the threat of the the military as well. Um it was like, the, it was still pretty high stakes, but it felt like because it was the beginning of the end, um, you knew shit was going to get worse. Um, and so there was still, like, an element of lightheartedness. And also just because it wasn't, like, a particularly serious game. Um, and I think that does make it feel lower stakes.
0: I think, you know... It did have the feeling of the, the, like, the military, the the slow realization that, like, oh, wait, the military's not gonna Yeah, because at first you're super excited. You're like,
3: yay, they're here to help us. Oh, fuck, no.
0: (laughs) Right, and their first messages are kind of encouraging. Like, you know, we're here, we're, you know, we're in the valley now, uh, et cetera. And then you start getting the realization that, like, huh, their CEO sounds a little bit iffy, and this is starting to get weird, and it escalates from there. Um I think something else is the first game, in some ways, I think, is is assisted by the smaller size of its world. Like, things feel a little more compressed in State of Decay 1. Like, State of Decay 2, a lot of my time with it feels like I'm running these endless freaking errands. Uh, And like the distances on these on these journeys is just increasing as you sort of strip mine what's near you and you start having to make longer drives to you know far flung outposts to different neighborhoods to to deal with stuff and a lot of that space is really empty in in state of decay too and so it feels like even if something threatening or interesting is happening in one part of that map, if you're not really equipped to deal with it, you just just mosey on in State of Decay 2. That's how the whole lot of it feels to me. Where instead State of Decay 1, a thing that would happen to me a lot is I would just be out, not even that far from my settlement. Again, it's kind of a small world. But I'd be out in town just looting some houses or something or, or dealing with an infestation, and I'd be fighting some zombies. And it's not that dangerous yet. And then, sort of on my mini-map, I see flags like there's a horde nearby. And there's these giant, like, really dense clusters of zombies that sort of accrete together and they become hordes. And it's not like they're running around like they are Billion-style. They're just large crowds of shamblers that are all moving in in the same direction. But if you pull aggro on on them, that entire group sort of comes after you and and joins the fight. And so I think that would happen routinely in that game is you'd be out there dealing with one small thing, and it was totally within your abilities. And then another thing would come up, and you'd be stuck in place a little bit longer to deal with that, maybe come more zombies out of the fight. And then a horde. You've now been in the same area long enough, a horde has stumbled across you. And now your stamina is becoming a problem, and it's becoming harder to sort of work crowd control on these things. And oh oh shit, another horde is actually on your mini-map, and you've got like... A minute to wrap this up and get out that would happen routinely in that first game in the second one i never have i've no never is a strong word but i very rarely have those cascades uh instead of the k2 i'm curious if that matches your experiences
2: uh i i had kind of one moment like that but the thing that i found being like being much more common in the way that they try to, like, simulate that stuff without actually making it happen, and it's maybe indicative of kind of, like, the tone of this game, which just feels, like, so mercenary in its math. It's just, like, it's not systemic. It, like, it's a, it's supposed to be a systemic, like, zombie apocalypse storytelling engine, but what ends up actually happening is just that they it throws, like, things at you that can't be done within the allotted time given to you artificially. And what the thing that I ended up running into was just like, well, okay, I ran into one horde once, but more commonly it was the, I think the, they called them the ferals, which are the fast-running zombies. And it would just be like, okay, you're on your way back with this rucksack full of, you know, juice or whatever. And then you would just get, um, you know, ambushed by this zombie that, pretty much just runs faster and attacks faster than your character animation can deal with at that time. And I would get stuck in these, like, kind of limping loops of just, like, having just enough stamina to run forward 10 feet, get attacked, or maybe have to dodge or whatever, and then move forward. But the actual, like, like the the cascade-type moments where it's not just one thing that's being thrown at me at once that's just really annoying to deal with, and it's something that, like, feels like it's actually building
3: towards a thing. Like, almost never. Just basically the one time. Hearing you guys talk about the game is exhausting because it's just so predictable. It's like, (laughs) this is a Mm -hmm. sandboxy zombie game, and you can... I think you could have not seen a trailer or heard anything about State of Decay 2, and you could make a pretty decent guess at everything (laughs) that game contains. Um, Not just the strategic bits, just the whole thing. And it's just so depressing. Uh, Especially Um, infected from straight out of Left 4 Dead. (laughs) they are also the explosions, yeah.
1: Uh, I think to take this a little bit general make this a little bit more generalized. Uh, one of the issues that State of Decay 2 has that a lot of, especially sequels have, is that it tries to take one part of uh, the game that existed before, which was this sort of stru- pseudo-strategic layer. And it says, OK, this is now our core system. So the first State of Decay had, was a lo- felt a lot more authored. But this one is bigger and wants to be bigger and wants to make that bigger work by having these systems and the systems are just not capable of holding that up because the systems were as fraser said in the first one they were pretty superficial and i don't think that these systems are more are that much less superficial in state of decay too the problem is that they're way more important that and this is something that i think happens when um these action games especially try to add strategic layers is that a game like shadow of mordor which was fairly constrained there were two zones and there was a slight potential occasional strategy where you'd like bring some orcs onto your side and send them off after somebody else Uh, suddenly in shadow of war that becomes the entire game and they try to make it more important and they try to make it deeper and they try to make it the thing that you do but they don't actually make it all that interesting or fun and so what was an interesting little joke of a thing to do at a small scale in the first game becomes the point and a chore in the second game and makes it significantly worse
3: I find that just so many games that have um, either a management strategic which are just happy enough to have it. It's like, right, it's in the game. We can say it's got this layer now. Let's go and do the bit that we actually want to do. Um, and it feels like they just kind of, oh, I guess we'll put it on because some people like that. And it it just feels so wasted. And you just have to look at something like Nino 2, which has this like, actually integrated management strategy, like um, an RTS element and an Empire management element. And it's not just that it's really connected to the rest of the game. It also feels kind of unique to that game as well. It's using mechanics that it hasn't just nicked um, and just put... it, it, It doesn't feel like some sort of default, strategy RTS battle that they've pinched from some other game, you can actually... I'm not sure, have you guys played Nidokuni 2? I have. I've just...
2: I've, sorry, you go ahead, Rowan. You no, probably I played actually more have me.
1: not been able to play it. I was just going to say that uh, I'm happy that we actually have a good example here, because all the examples that I have of uh, non-strategy games... Yeah, that, they're yeah, usually like, shit. Like,
3: <laughs> I, yeah, well this one's... It's, so basically, as this new king, well you've just had been kicked off your throne, but you've got a new one pretty quickly. Um, <laughs> you have to go out and you've got to fight little monsters in proper RTS battles opposed to your little JRPG battles, your, your action combat. Um, and then you've also got a city that you're developing, your kingdom, really with buildings that can be used to research uh, new technologies or create weapons and armour, uh, and also upgrade your little nature spirits that you use in battle. You're I think they're called Higgledies, which is Higgledies, adorable. Yeah. Um, but the way the RTS component works is on the, the big kind of world map, you'll see little banners, and you go activate the banner and you get in... a a conscripted RTS battle with the little enemy who will berate you and mock you. And then you have to chase them around between like palisades and things like that while units are are, are flung at you. You control your army with your shoulder buttons, um, basically spinning them around in a circle around your king uh, to deal with the things like that you're facing. So if you have... you start with infantry and archers, just one of each. So if you've got some guys chasing you or or charging at you, you might want to spin it around so your archers are, are facing them and they can start firing away but as it gets closer you spin it around the other way and bring in your infantry, those two units will collide and your archers will be behind you safely firing Away, and then there's, you. You can uh, get four units um, in in one battle. So you're just kind of constantly spinning them around to figure out who's best equipped to deal with the enemies and so your front, back, and sides. Uh, it's and you, and all at the same time, you've also got like this kind of resource management element to it because you have your military power uh, that can be used to uh, fire off special attacks, like having like bombing raids, because you have sky pirates helping you out, uh, or stunning units. And you also use it to reinforce if you've taken damage. But it actually, you get like thousands, but it goes really, really quickly. If you've had like one bad fight, um, then you can recruit all your new guys and suddenly you have nothing left for special abilities or any more reinforcements. Um, It's very easy, but it's also quite easy to, to trip yourself up. Uh, but it just it 's like something that f- it doesn 't feel like complicated or deep, but it does feel uniquely Nino Kuni, which I think is what almost every one of these games that we 're going to be talking about doesn 't have the The thing I really like about Nino kuni in particular from the bit the little bit of the
2: uh sort of army combat that I have played is that it is this kind of like almost super stripped down version of um, medieval mounted and ranged combat where you're like concerned about like positioning and, yeah. you know, protecting your flanks and things like that. But they've boiled it all down to literally two buttons. <laughs> and it, like you said, it is, it is pretty easy, but like, it's just enough to think about and, and thinking about it in like a different way than you would in say, like uh, in a Suikoden, which is a, you know, very similar kind of mix of RPG and um, strategy game. And, uh, and in a way that like feels fast and feels like interesting and keeps your keeps your brain alive, you know, it keeps you it keeps you moving, uh, and I really really like it.
3: But it's that it has this cohesion with the rest of the game. Every part of the game is tied into your empire management and um, RTS battles. You'll have quests. The rewards you get will be used in other parts of the game. It's, it's especially noticeable, obviously, the empire management side, because at the core of the game, it's about fostering this new kingdom. Uh, starting fresh with this new kingdom, bringing in people from all over the world to help you and man the buildings that you create and help you in in battle. Uh, so it, it doesn't feel like you've just had your little RPG quest and now you're like, right, I'm going to go and do the Empire Management bit for 30 minutes and then I'll go back to questing. You're always doing empire management stuff uh, often you'll find people out in the world who'll have a quest for you and it'll be you you'll want to do the quest so you can attract them back to your kingdom maybe they'll have a particular skill that will come in really handy and you can make them run your like blacksmith or something like that because they're really good at making weapons uh, so you're doing these quests so you can actually buff up your empire uh, So yeah, all all the time we were doing more than one thing. And kind of actually like talking,
2: combining something you said and what Rowan said earlier about what State of Decay doesn't do is that's also just like a... Yeah, they they tie in mechanically, but it's also a very complementary fantasy to the JRPG, the typical JRPG fantasy, I find. Like, it's starting from nothing. You know, your empire starting from nothing is just like starting at level one, Trying to get to level 99, doing the special side quest to get the super sword that's going to make you so powerful is the same as like doing the special quest that'll get you the blacksmith that builds the better weapons that powers up your army, and yeah, like just, rather than just mechanical, like the, just the feeling that it embodies is also very like uh, complimentary.
3: I'm actually reminded a lot of uh, Little King's Story, um, mm. which is obviously a lot like, more of a, a tactical game, I guess, than ninokuni no Kuni, which is more of a a, a proper jrpg, but um there's just so much um it's it's like the actual mechanics are different, like the r t s stuff is completely different from from little King's story, but there's obviously the actual aesthetic is quite similar uh, and just that it's there is depth to it, but it's just so like any little kid could start playing uh mm-hmm. Nino Kuni 2 and understand it in a second, and they're not gonna have any problems with. The, the early RTS battles which they'll then teach them to maybe handle the tougher ones further down the line. So it feels like quite an open accessible game as well. And I think when you add a lot of these extra layers, it does complicate it. Like I don't I think like a lot of kids would and obviously you're not gonna get little kids playing State of Decay too, probably. <laughs> um but there are other games that aren't like gruesome or violent that have these extra, like, management aspects. And I just think they could be kind of off-putting, um, whereas this, like, I can't imagine anyone really struggling with Nino Kuni 2.
1: I think some of this also comes from the fact that JRPGs have been doing this for a long time. Like, we've mentioned Suikoden. I think that's, that's yeah. sort of the big turning point mm-hmm. in the genre for this sort of thing, which is uh, PlayStation games, uh, mid-late 90s, uh, that... Had their their claim to fame was that they had hundred and eight recruitable characters, uh, and like that's absurd, right? But it's not absurd if you have some place to put them. So in both of the good Suikoden games and in the bad ones too, uh, you get a castle that <laughs> you can have your characters in, and you can do various things to upgrade the castle. Uh, Suikoden Two famously has an entire Iron Chef mode that you can play, that is does virtually nothing in the game except have your characters be in a ridiculous iron chef thing. That's a really fun little thing to do in your castle. So it, it's, uh, it starts this trend of JRPG sort of thinking about how can we make this, um, overlaying, uh, layer actually meaningful. And, uh, in does this by actually having a strategic battle mode, um, so your 108 characters will build up your army, even if you don't actually use them in your six person RPG party very much or at all, they still make your army bigger in these very simple tactical combat things. Uh, the first one is sort of a rock, paper, scissors thing that, uh, just has armies kind of bash into each other, uh, after you make a choice on a menu. And then the second one is a, uh, fast, uh, tactical war game kind of thing, kind of fire emblemy, but much simpler. Um, And these things, like, come together to say, hey, I do want to actually recruit more of these people into my castle, and then the castle reinforces it because the castle is cute. And so, you know, JRPGs since then have been working on that, and Western RPGs have sort of caught up with that. Uh, Stuff like Mass Effect building up the Normandy, and... uh...
3: Well, I think with Western RPGs, Mm -hmm. it's more, it's the stronghold style thing really which i actually i think is a slightly different evolutionary branch really it's not the i don't think it comes for it's catching up to like suikoden or anything like that i think it's its own thing that's <laughs> not as good yeah that's <laughs> um <laughs>
0: unfortunately the not as goodness interests me though like i think one of the one of the things here is like these systems are char like are charming in these other contexts but then you see something similar in like fallout four well i shouldn't I shouldn't like speak too universally about Fallout Four because I think my partner ended up mostly being okay with uh w- with base building and sort of like sort of enjoyed it. It wasn't her favorite part of the game, but like yeah, she thought it was cute. I know some people who really did enjoy base building and settlement building in Fallout four, but it did seem to mostly turn people off. Uh State of Decay 2 makes me want to destroy my Xbox. Um, <laughs> like and uh Shadow of War, um Middle-earth Shadow of War seem to actively just grind people to powder. Uh yeah. and just like melt their will to continue. So I'm I'm curious what, what you think accounts for like the qualitative, like uh, clearly there's some inspiration that links back to these other sort of meta metagames uh, that have been deployed in RPGs and particularly JRPGs for years. But now we're seeing it become like a trend in what we call like mainstream or not even mainstream. I'm not sure if like mainstream describes David of Decay too, but like sort of action games, I'd say, right? Like oh. we're seeing that deployed more in these sort of long form open world games.
1: Uh, and it's not charming well one of the things in terms of it not being good with the especially the western rpgs is that it's usually used as kind of a marker of progression like um, in mass effect and in pillars of eternity and those sorts of things you have your your base and when you get enough money or items or whatever you add a thing that makes your base a little bit better and there's not other than Mass Effect 2, the, your people can occasionally die at the end of the game if you didn't get all the upgrades done. Like It's just a line that goes up, and it's a line that goes up and says, you're doing great. Keep it up, buddy. Um, so it's not good, but it's not strategic. It's just kind of a, a reward. Uh, and like that's functional. That doesn't get in the way of me enjoying the game. Whereas in some of the games that you mentioned there, um, it gets in the way of me enjoying the game.
3: I think the strongholds are actually, like, quite cool. They're just really superficial a lot of the time. Like, the Normandy is awesome. I love the Normandy. I love, like, the little breaks between missions where I get to chat to my crew and explore this, like, lens flarey spaceship. Um, But it's only ever the suggestion of running a ship. Uh, I think Pillars 2 does it a lot better with... um, your actual ships mm-hmm. because you have legit management concerns, I actually don 't think that the ship combats any good Mm-mm. in shit, but <laughs> the actual like having a ship and having a crew with personalities that gets into disputes, having like like different qualities of food and water that improve like the healing and morale of your crew, having to worry about who 's injured, and yeah, all of these things were genuinely uh, engaging uh, and that's like i think the first time that any crpg has actually had a stronghold that didn't just suggest that you were managing something it actually made you a captain of a ship and that was infinitely cool i'm just actually kind of curious like
2: um systemically if like uh, like what the reasoning behind like why some of these things turn out the way they do has something to do with the with, like like the economics of the thing like on both ends yeah, like because uh, uh, you know Rob obviously you mentioned that the thing in uh, Shadow of War is that it just grinded people ground people to dust and so much so that they you know partially because of you know the the backlash to that but then also partially because of the backlash to microtransactions in the world in general right now they they walked a lot of that stuff out of the game they removed a lot of that rebalanced some of it I think and I think it I think it's on that end that like people see like oh infinite progression that can keep, like, us playing, you know, a 60-hour game, one 60-hour game for, you know, for 70 hours, or or one 8-hour game for 60 hours, or whatever it is, Um, that means microtransactions, that means, like, we can, or we can sell, in the case of State of Decay, we can sell a DLC pack, or in the case of Fallout, we can sell a season pass that will have more, like, building options down the road and stuff like that, and, um, beyond, the, or, or earlier than that, like, the idea of, you know, in th- these Japanese games, in Nidokuni, no like, when you are on the f- field of battle with these units, it's not the actual full-detail high-scale models from the regular JRPG combat. It's these little um, super-deformed chibi models of everybody, like, moving at these very, you know, very simple models, and so I imagine that's gotta be just cheaper to, to scale and to replicate over time and stuff like that, and Pillars of Eternity, too, at partially maybe like maybe splits the difference by the fact that it is a three D game, but, you know, it's fairly low detail three D models, so they're not doing a ton of really expensive two D art, and they can, you know, replicate those three D models over time and stuff like that. And the ship to ship combat is mostly told through text. So they can get a little bit crunchier.
3: Yeah, they abstract all of that in Pillars too. Like is everything like when you're actually sailing your ship, it's it's you know, like Nino Kuni in the sense that it has this kind of little model floating through mm-hmm. the sea. It's not like, actually, you're sailing through the right. sea while yeah. standing on your ship. Um, but I don't think... I think there are some moments where that can be... Uh, I think it is an economics thing, but I think also with ninokuni no Kuni 2, like, it is an aesthetic thing. Like, the actual overworld map is mm-hmm. this little chibi, deformed thing. It wasn't in uh no Kuni 1, or, like, the characters on the map were still... Your normal characters, um, but I think that is more an aesthetic choice, uh, and it actually also I feel like it makes more sense to have if when you're on the the map and you're about to get into a battle, it's nice that it's just almost like kind of seamless. Um, you're not going to like yet another different mode. You're keeping your characters from the from the world map, uh, and it also m- means that they can play with the scale a little bit more as well.
1: Yeah, I think. When Fraser asked earlier, uh, like why are they putting the strategic modes in? Because people like them, and let's go to the let's go to the things that we actually care about. Um, I don't think it's that people like them so much as investors really like them or uh, executives really like them. So uh, what they're able, what maybe those are the people that what this what this trend in games, what the this sort of general trend in games is is games as a service. These games that you want to. Or they want people playing infinitely and potentially buying into infinitely or just you know they could be games that you you know buy once or play for free or whatever but you build a community that other people are buying things um so it's this push overall throughout almost the entire industry to have like instead of ea instead of having, like, six different Star Wars games in each genre, wants to cram every genre into Battlefront. Um, and this helps them sell their loot chests. It helps them sell their season passes. Uh, it It's what these companies seem to want. And I think one of the things that they have realized is they can cannibalize strategy games. They look at an XCOM becoming a mainstream hit and say, we want some of that and we're going to take the bad parts of it um, that we think are the right parts. We think these are the things that people like when they're actually just the things that make the game longer and we're going to add this to our game. So you get Fallout 4 that... I think there, there are kind of, sort of two aspects of Fallout 4 that... Um, one is good and one is bad in terms of the kind of strategic base building stuff. The actual process of building up the base is pretty fun. Like you get these supplies and you build the walls and uh, some of these bases are super constrained. Like I spent the most time in the, the little alleyway in Boston and like the, the core part of the city where there's like almost no space. So I just built straight up and that was really fun. Um, but the aspect of the game that involves
3: yeah it's it's not it's fiddly as well though like it doesn't feel like it was designed for base building it's it's not that great
1: but it it's just kind (laughs) of neat to do whereas the part where you're like recruiting people and having them defend these areas and trying to get quests and go off and defend them yourself it's it's just pointless like it's uh these were reasonably successful mods with earlier fallout games and uh It feels like it's a tacked-on mod to have sort of the idea of a strategic layer of surviving the apocalypse, but it's not actually involving that in any way other than that here's a thing that'll add, you know, 20 more hours to the gameplay that they can put on the back of the box. And
2: and opens the door to a $10 DLC that they wouldn't have been able to sell beforehand.
1: Right. And then, so... Then you take that a step further, you get something like Shadow of War, where we've talked about how this grinds people to dust. And the reason that that game grinds people to dust is because it was designed so that you could buy your way out of being ground to dust by picking up a loot box that has the orcs that you recruit. And now you have you pay $5 or whatever, and you get these orcs. Now you don't have to go through the process of finding the orc you want to recruit, making sure that you you know get him separated so that you can do your magic mind powers on him then making him go up all the levels that he needs to go up by fighting other orcs in a really boring fashion you can just pay to shortcut that it's like an airline where like they make everything worse for you and then charge you to get out of the bad things it's like a constant negative reinforcement and they're using they're using our genre to do that and it's frankly offensive Wow, that went some places. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was I having
0: some like the fun that. there. Uh but I'm not sure you're <laughs> wrong. Like it, to an extent, like I am hard pressed to think of games that have been made substantially better by this. Um like especially when the goal seems to be creating a giant open-ended grind or we want to be kind, like, you know, it's, oh, it's a meta-layer resource management game, but the, the sum effect is, like, grind, like, run on that treadmill uh, forever. Um, I am curious, like, is this something, is, is there a version of this that games like this can, can do successfully and actually improve themselves by uh, including these layers? Like, is this, is this, a, is this a just bad conceptually, uh, for, for a lot of these action games uh, in, in a way that it's not for RPGs? Or is there something just consistently flawed about the implementation uh, that you could see being corrected?
3: Well, It's bad conceptually, because like, in the sense that they haven't thought about the concept, uh, it's just tacked on. It is, there's, you know, maybe it's either laziness, maybe it's ulterior motives, maybe it's just a confusion about what actually makes strategy, tactics, management interesting. Um, But yeah, there's definitely a problem. But I think there are, you know, all it takes is for there to be one game where it's good and then it, it means that people should keep trying. Because Nino Kuni 2 stands, I think, as an example, and it's not the only one where it works, where removing it would fundamentally make the game so much worse. Like, you have to have it in the game, and it's good that it's in the game because it's a fun thing to engage with. Um, If one game can do it, then any game can. Uh, So yeah, I don't think it is just something that we're going to have to resign ourselves to the fact that it's always going to be shit. There's (laughs) There's some light there, but it probably isn't going to be coming from like warner brothers or anything like that uh, the the one place i would push back against
2: that just half-heartedly at least is actually kind of the yakuza 6 which i mentioned earlier uh before i think we've started recording which is i don't think a good it has a, a real-time strategy thing in it i think it gets like halfway there uh the, the, the Can you describe it, the system a little bit and like where yeah. where it comes in? Sure. Um uh, fairly early on to that into that game, um the main character kind of like comes into like contact with his B plot that is kind of very much separate from the main game, like it starts in the main story, but then like kind of spins off into its own thing, where um, you are building up your own sort of uh, accidental yakuza clan um, that is separate from the one that the Kiryu, the main character, has been part of throughout the series, and the real time strategy element is basically. You can you go into these like overhead perspective and spawn units that all have like different archetypes. Like here's the heavy that can tank a lot of damage. Here's the grenade thrower that has range. Here's the you know fast guy who can get in under guard and stuff like that. And then you can also throw out it almost Suikoden and you like uh, recruit lieutenants for you by completing regular side quests that go into that mode and have special abilities. And while you can't actually control where they walk, they all just kind of like run both armies just kind of run into each other Um, you can control when these special lieutenants use their special abilities that might be like a healing field or a drop kick that you know penetrates enemy lines and stuff like that Um, and it's not particularly fun on its own (laughs) that's the that's the the one glaring problem with it is because you are so hands off with it that it almost feels like a phone game of some sort uh but in a very Nino kuni like fashion, I think it fits in with the fantasy of that world, which is to just tack things on in service of this very befuddled main character. Like I think they get the spirit right in that way. In in that like, oh, Kiryu is this kind of like um, well meaning. Not entirely book smart, but but fair, but very emotionally mature character that kind of screws up all the time and accidentally. Now he here he is accidentally creating his own yakuza clan, and people are like, you know, he he calls it like the 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 army that they're creating to fight. By the way, all the enemies that you're fighting in this are uh, portrayed by and uh, vo- are voiced by and modeled after New Japan Pro Wrestling wrestlers, um, which is a fun wrinkle to it too. But. Um, the, the, the ongoing story with it, because it is off to the side, just like so much of what is off to the side in Yakuza, like going to the arcades and dealing with these subquests and finding all these wacky and wild characters and Kiryu inserting himself into people's lives almost by accident and like um, doing these different things, that stuff all feels right. It feels within the spirit of the Yakuza franchise. It's just the thing itself, it, Like much like I think the batting cages are not that fun, but adds something to the fantasy of this big giant like Japan minigame simulator that Yakuza is feels like, like the right thing for that franchise. And now if they could just make it, you know, fun to actually move the units around and stuff like that, it would be perfect. But, you know, I think, I think they're, they're, they're the closest any action game I can think of off the top of my head has gotten to making it a meaningful addition to uh, the formula. So I think one of the things that we're
1: running into here is uh, something that, Uh, comes up a fair amount, especially when we talk about tactics games, which is when you have multiple layers to a game, I feel that you sort of have to pick one. When you're playing a Total War game, Total War has very much picked the tactical combat is what it's about. Uh, Most tactics games pick the tactical combat, and the strategic layer is kind of there to hold the hand of the tactical layer, there to provide context, there to help you guide it, but you're living and dying on the tactical layer. Um, and so when you look at a game like State of Decay 1, the management side of it is there to hold the hand of the goofy zombie destroying simulator. Uh, when you look at State of Decay 2, it's really unclear which one of them is in charge. Uh, you are always making your decisions based on what their strategic layer tells you what to do, or maybe not almo- always, but almost always you're saying this thing says I need food. I have to go to the grocery store and see if I can dig up some food. Um, and that becomes sort of the focus of the game is making those bars go up or go down or whatever. And in doing so it tears the game in half. Um, so I think that it's possible uh, to potentially have these action games with strategic layers. Uh, but they have to work right together. Um, and I was going to bring this up earlier, but like I like Dynasty Warriors. Dynasty Warriors is an action game with a strategic component in terms of, uh, you know, you can have the battle be lost by not protecting your your general while you're running around bashing people in the head over and over. Uh the strategic layer is very low on that. The main point of that is you mash the buttons and cool things happen, and if it's just enough where you can say, "Oh, this this might point me in this direction if I want to," you know, engage in the battle at the way that the battle seems to want me to engage. Um, and I think that that is a way that it could work. But when the more important the strategic layer gets and i think when you look at a fallout or the state of decay or shadow of war like they had the right intentions in saying we want to take this aspect of the game that's sort of implicit and make it explicit but by making it explicit they made it too important
3: wasn't there another i've only played like one dynasty warriors game and it may have been like 20 years ago um, but isn't that there a, a dynasty warriors empires or something like one which is more overtly yes. strategic yeah is that yes. right
1: that's it's more of a procedurally generated thing where you have where Procedural, it might not be quite the right way, but it's kind of a, a, a sandboxy mode where instead of just going through a set of battles according to however the game has been written, it's, you know, you are controlling a random set of units and you go on to, you decide, I say I'm going to invade this province. Um, it doesn't change the, it's mostly a remix, I would say. Um, it's a mm-hmm. neat thing to do if you know you like it, but it doesn't add like a huge amount of strategic stuff to it
2: that that does remind me though of i completely forgot about this game but uh fire emblem warriors actually does a pretty good job i think of what you're talking about Rowan, of like one element holding the other which is they just basically transplant a lot of these strategic um ideas uh Directly from the Fire Emblem series and move it to a real-time system by having everybody, you know, you have the button mashy, like, I'm on horseback and just running through and killing 999 guys, but at any time during that game you can pull up the same map that would show you here's where all the guys are on the battlefield and the other units that you can normally just swap to and be that, like inhabit that person in any other dynasty warriors game. You can then actually from that map, move them to specific forts into different things. And you're making choices about like, who's the best person to move to which fort based on which Lieutenant is there because it uses the fire emblem weapon triangle where, uh, swords beat, I can't remember the exact, uh, Order, but it's like one, there's axes, swords, and lances, and one beats the other beats the other beats the other beats the other. And by doing that, you do have this kind of, ve- it's, it's fairly light, but um, it, it actually, I think, it benefits from the fact that, like, well, if you know both Fire Emblem and Dynasty Warriors going into it, like, you can kind of just jump right in and know exactly how the uh, strategic layer should shake out, and can make like, you can kind of maximize use of it, and that same like in a way that does complement the like button mashy. I need to kill x number of guys. I just don't need to do it with my own two hands. I can send off this other unit to go
3: do it for me. See, so I've been eyeing that for a while now, um, because while I didn't play much Dynasty Warriors, there was like a good year in university where. Me and, and, a, and a bunch of my friends were obsessed with Bladestorm. It was just <laughs> not a good game, like, by any means. But we were, like, in our 20s and bored and had no money, and we had this game, and it was just incredible. Um, so it's... Because it's kind of the a similar sort of game where you're fighting. It's like an action game with loads and loads of people in these massive battles. But you actually you take command of a unit or two, so you might be like, right, I'm going to be running this cavalry unit or I'm going to be running this unit of ninjas or wizards. It's, of course, set during the Hundred Years' War. Um, (laughs) Um... it's with business? With ninjas and wizards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. You play so like a, historically accurate. You play a mercenary yes. and you can choose to play for the different sides. But it's either way you're gonna get your eventually get to recruit ninjas and wizards and all sorts of things. It's very it's very much a sort of fantasy Japanese um reimagining of the war. Uh, but yeah, you actually have Uh, you know france split up into these regions that you're then trying to take over there's like an actual war playing out so your battles contribute to the war uh so and there are like sometimes you'll have these sort of special battles where they're actually going to to take this like city or fortification or something like that and it I wouldn't call it strategic, especially because you're kind of playing as a mercenary, so it often feels like a bit incidental, um, because sometimes you might be like, right, I'll actually fight for the French today. Uh, I can't remember much about the story, or if we even finished it, despite playing it for a year, because it's the sort of game that you can just keep playing forever, really. Uh, But yeah, there was just that hint that we were changing the tide of the war, and that the the places we went to fight in really did matter and we were making important choices. Um, and sometimes I think that is actually all it takes, really, for that layer. It's it, just that sense that you're doing something cool and maybe bigger than you would be if you were playing a straight action game. Uh, and it did actually feel a bit better integrated than some of the stuff we've discussed. Purely because we're talking about an actual war, like a real historical war, even though they've maybe uh, twisted it a little bit. Uh, so the, the setting contributes to that sense of strategy, I think.
1: Well, Fraser, you've got ninety-nine years of Bladestorm to go. So. <laughs> <laughs>
3: like I saw, there was like a. I'm not sure if it was remastered or it was just backwards compatible now. Um, and I was really like, I was eyeing it up, and like, I'm not sure if it really holds up, or if indeed it, it was good, good to begin with. I've been told mm. by people I trust that I was wrong, just and it of the was fun shit. Had. I, I had <laughs> such a wonderful time with it. Uh. I think you're right. It's so great, especially when you meet the, like the actual like big players of the war and it's all like over the top JRPG stuff about these European historical figures. Yeah, it's, it's an unusual game. Check it out.
1: Is the Black Prince in there?
3: Yeah. yeah. Like he's there. <laughs> and it's just the fun, it is so so
2: strange. He's dressed like a Dark Knight from Final Fantasy XIV. <laughs> his,
3: his armor is incredible. It's no. like the size of a fucking house.
0: <laughs> I, one last thing I'd say here is that I think this is Specificity of these modes Like them relating to something In your game or something you're doing I think is important because then It doesn't feel like an odd Detour to what you Whatever it is you were, you were actually trying to do It feels like a different way To present maybe your overall goal And I I don't know just just hearing some of these anecdotes they just remind me of like again one of the things that leaves me cold about a uh, shadow of war or a um a state of decay is that they leave the gears so visible as they sort of turn and try to generate these like little interactions and story beats that like none of it feels like it is happening in my game necessarily. I don't feel any ownership of it. It feels very much like, um, I don't know, very, very mad Libby or like, you know, fill, you know, fill in the blanks or, uh, you know, we're spinning the plot wheel uh, one more time. And I think in the context of a, you know, a game with like the original state of decay or, or something like that, um, that little bit of randomness affecting characters you care about a, a, larger goal or story that, you, that you're pursuing, that can sort of liven it up. Uh, but when these systems are designed with the goal of being explicitly like endless um, and like almost infinitely repeatable, I think they begin to break down because at that point, you just are interacting with the system. It feels like you're interacting with the system, not with whatever the rest of the game you've been playing is. Um, and that's, I think, where a lot of the charm gets utterly lost. Like, I will, I want to help Kiryu and his group of, well, no, actually, everyone Kiryu recruits is smarter than he is. That's the catch. So it's not like (laughs) Kiryu and his army of dumbasses, because, like, Kiryu is kind of the ultimate, like, he is your lovable, um galoot i guess he's, a, he he's means a so well <laughs> yeah uh but but you know what i mean like like kiryu like him like sort of creating a yakuza family and like there being a game around that it's like oh yeah well this is you know this is part of kiryu's story is him sort of climbing the ranks of the underworld and and sort of playing these games but it's not a huge thing what i care way less about is like if Kiryu himself is just a set of, like, random RPG stats and traits. And mm-hmm. then everyone in that world is also just, like, a random collection of numbers and traits. Uh, because then there's, there's nothing for me to invest in or
2: even, like, wind my own narrative around. I mean, yeah, the, the, specifically the thing in Yakuza 6, like, if Kiryu wasn't Kiryu like that whole mode would be shit. The only reason I even like it as much as I do is because I care about that character. But but if that same thing existed with the character like the randomly spun up characters in State of Decay, it would like you would never nobody would want to play that. You wouldn't ever recommend
3: that to somebody. Do you think it's just like a misunderstanding on some developers' parts on like what is actually like what a strategy game actually entails, and they're like, okay, as long as we have some numbers and we can make them fight, there's some stats in there. That's what these nerds love, and they forget that actually strategy games are full of stories and characters, and without them, they often end up being hollow. And it's something that we actually criticise a lot on the show. Um, We talk about stuff that. Like you don't immediately think of as relevant to strategy, but it's relevant to all games.
0: Maybe it's also that so many of these systems—I don't know. I wonder if the success of the survival genre or theme has done designers a service in this regard too, where it's like. Oh, well, what people really enjoy is the feeling of precarity and progress being at risk or lost. Mm -hmm. And I'm not really sure that's what's compelling in those games. First of all, clearly those games are more compelling than I tend to find them because they they do tend to be wildly successful. But I think a lot of these systems are also sort of meant to layer in this idea of... um, oh, well, you just need, like, people just love filling up uh, sort of their resource bucket and, and, and worrying about that stuff, and that's, and, and, and that's good gameplay. Uh, and, and I'm not sure it, it is. Um, I'm pretty sure it's not. I, I think the, re, the thing that is being looked to for the resource management model um, isn't strategy games. It's survival games in a lot of these cases, and I think maybe that's a problem.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of these survival games have obviously drawn from strategy mm-hmm. or, or management more than strategy specifically. But it's, I, I know what you mean. They're like, they're taking it from survival games rather than the source. Um, and like, I, I'm sort of, I feel like survival games are due just a truly gargantuan shake up because they are really by the numbers these days. And maybe they've always been. Um, one of the issues with bringing in these survival elements and then making it all random or procedural is that when we lose things, we only lose, like, care about losing them if we've forged a connection. Like, it's not the, the thing we like isn't losing things, it's the, the thought that we might lose something we care about and be desperate not to. And so, constantly work to try and keep that thing that we like safe. Um, that's what's compelling. Um, and they've completely forgotten or not even realized that. It's, yeah, it's
2: sad. It, it does feel to me kind of like almost making a copy of a copy of a copy <laughs> of a copy because there are so, like, not to say that there aren't strategy games these days. Like, there's, obviously there are, but, like, there are no this, there are enough Starcrafts of the world where it's like everybody knows what this thing is. Like, the, the, the strategy game community, at least to me it seems like it kind of like lives a little bit more on the edges and where we have uh, examples of like what a strategy game is come from games that take strategy games and like put their strategy L game elements and put them into other games or uh, you know, try to shake them up a little bit more um, around the edges and make something like a darkest dungeon or something uh, like that. And that's a prime example of a game that does have, you know, high stakes built you know around the permadeath built on like developing these, uh, relationships with your characters, um, and you know, I wonder if we just—I don't know—I don't know if it'll ever happen. I don't know, you know, I don't know if people just need to start looking at like Dota two and League of Legends as like because those so squarely supplanted like real time strategy games in the mainstream uh, for uh, you know uh, inspiration for these elements to go forward. But uh, I I do feel like it might just be the fact that like everybody looks at the things that cribbed from something else rather than the things that created those ideas in the first place.
1: I think when we're talking about the games that uh, aren't doing this very well, um, these also seem to be the games that are the most ambitious with them. And I think a lot of it is just that it takes a lot of different people and a lot of different meetings and a lot of different production teams and a lot of different you know, jobs just to make a damn game and sometimes that's going to fall through the cracks and like the more things they add the more likely it is to fall through the cracks especially when you're just dealing with something that's not a core aspect of the game the core aspect of fallout 4 is this rpg exploration shooting thing it's not a colony Mm -hmm. simulator So you add this on, and it works with the engine, and that's probably the main thing that they wanted to do with it. And, like, that's just how it happens to go. Uh, It's not, you know, a Darkest Dungeon where you have four people who are working on making this the most Darkest Dungeon the Darkest (laughs) Dungeon can possibly
3: be. It is weird to think that people could be like, right, let's make, let's bolt on this incredibly elaborate, complicated genre that Honestly, even developers that only make games in this genre often fuck up and add it to our gargantuan, procedural, sandboxy action game. It's like, why would you do that unless you have, like, a thousand people working on it?
1: But they they do have a thousand people working on it, and all those thousands of people have these other things (laughs) that they're bolting onto it. Like, each of them is building the bolt, uh, and the fact that some of these games are even moderately playable is kind of a miracle. I'm thinking like of Assassin's Creed with the, you know, 800 people working on it and you know, the 600 different modes that you can use with it. Like, it's it's just piling things on top of things and, you know. That, it's
3: no, instead not of just that trying of to squash surprise. two instead of just trying to squash two genres together or multiple genres together, it just feels like we need to just get rid of like, the idea of these things being genres and just be like, just pick mechanics rather than trying to bolt the whole thing onto it. Um, because, if, I mean, as I said, I've not played State of Decay 2, but it feels like what they've actually tried to bolt on these things but then just cut off all the bits that feel actually good. But the, the frame is still there. They have just, like, ripped it out of a, of a strategy or management game and stuck it onto their open-world survival game it it does actually uh, uh perhaps
2: like poetically feel like a game that was designed in a lab by the <laughs> studio undead labs you know like it, it even just down to the fact that it this is a zombie game like can you think of a more tired concept in video games right now like a, like just a, a more tired threat than than zombies but it was even tired
0: when State of k1 came out and they found something fresh to do with it i think mean, here it's
3: um I don't, know. Yeah, I don't think zombies are tired. I think that the people writing about them are. State of the
1: Decay 2 was the game that actually made me say, okay, yeah, I am actually tired of zombies like everyone tweets about all the time. Uh, yeah. This, For me, that was this is the one too, that's finally you know. broken.
0: Congratulations on the Fear of the Walking Dead of, uh, <laughs> uh, of those <laughs> Um, also, I'm, I was I was taken aback a moment ago by this uh, screenshot of the Black Prince in, in this <laughs> game like that? that Fraser <laughs> shared with us on on the chat. Uh, we might need that, <laughs> to link it to this in the uh, in, in the show notes. This is he's gorgeous, this is isn't he? <laughs>
3: uh, this is gonna
0: this is gonna stick with me.
3: He's he's gorgeous, but you know he won't treat you well. <laughs> no, no, hundred
0: percent not. Complete um, dick. <laughs> but anyway. I mean he would definitely step on anyway. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. the thing the just one last question that occurred to me uh, before I saw that picture is Assassin's Creed Revelations, does that does that like the does the de- den defense mode in that deserve consideration oh, alongside she, I the stuff? About
3: that.
2: Ooh, I was thinking about that,
0: yeah.
3: It was fun, but it's got the same sort of issues where it ultimately just feels kind of shallow and actually Mm -hmm. you could take it out and I don't think the game would be all that much worse off for it. I'm actually probably one of the
2: biggest Assassin's Creed Revelations defenders that you will meet. You're going to defend that, that Dan.
3: No? (laughs) Revelations had a lot of defenders. I thought it was uh, kind of quite a well-liked game.
2: Uh, I I remember, maybe it's just a maybe it's just my anecdotal experience then, cuz I remember that very much being the like first game where people were like okay this annual uh uh release schedule for Assassin's Creed needs to go.
3: Uh, yeah, well, I think it was, it was because what? it was the second Brother sequel Brotherhood? Yeah, was. Brotherhood. I think yeah. people were tired because yeah. it was Assassin's Creed 2 again. Yeah for but the third time. As, but like standing alone it was I think pretty good. But yeah I just don't it's, think yeah. it was necessary. But sorry you were saying.
2: No, I was just going to say the I am probably one of the like bigger defenders of that game from that era and I barely remember that uh den defense mode at all. Like <laughs> like that is the 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 things I remember from that game are like the the weird first person platforming sections and the the hook blade being kind of a neat way of getting around the like fudgier parts of the parkour in that game and the den defense is just the 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 thing that like uh, at least based on my own memories is the thing that you could have taken out of that game and I would never would have noticed.
0: So, all right, you know, so yeah that's a no it's great <laughs> uh, alright all right. Uh, I think we will we will leave it there uh, so that'll do it for this week we'll be back next week with more strategy discussion uh, 3 Moves Ahead is produced as always by Michael Hermes and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network you can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at 3 or follow us on twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA finally 3 Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on patreon and more at patreon.com slash 3ma uh anyway we'll be back next week with another episode until then for steven for fraser and rowan this is rob zachney saying good night
3: and the black prince <laughs> he doesn't say good night he just sits there
2: smoldering you wake up he's god in the morning
0: yeah